You're listening to We, we, we the Aether Podcast, within and without. Welcome. Irving, thank you for taking the time to have the discussion today. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure a lot of people that are watching and listening to this episode are going to appreciate it as well because you have a lot of valuable information to share. And to kick things off, do you mind briefly introducing yourself so anyone that's not familiar with, with your works can proceed? Well, I, this is the most difficult question. Who am I? You know, I'm still, I'm still working on that. So yeah. I didn't make much headway. But anyway, I've, I've done lots and lots of books. I started life as a concert pianist. I was playing all over the world until, until I was about 25 or 26. And I got interested in philosophy, first as a hobby. And then I, uh, then I got uh, published some books, got invited to Yale University. And then I did a PhD at the Sorbonne and University of Paris. And I got launched in the academic world. And I did some a lot of more work there and published things, and uh, got in, also involved in international uh, political system through the Club of Rome, and I founded the Club of Budapest, and that kind of kind of calling ourselves trying to be the conscience of of, of, of humanity in a good sense. And then I right now I am very busy on on writing a number of books, and I have now just about 102 published books onto my title and about 400 papers or so. And so uh, my, my, my interest is what's happening today, how can we help it, how can we develop a new and better understanding of the world and of ourselves and what does that mean? What are, what are the challenges, the opportunities? Plenty of challenges today, obviously. But what are also the opportunities and how can we develop new thinking that we need, which I call the new paradigm. And that's also a research institute on this, that name, the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research. So that's very briefly what I'm involved in, involved mm -hmm. in the world, trying to do my best. Mm -hmm. And now, to dial back a bit there, what initially got you, uh, sparked your interest in philosophy? What, what took you down that road? And, and at what well, age exactly was, were you? That was built into my childhood, mm. and I forgot about it for a long time until I sort of came back again in my 20s. Uh, you see, I had uh, I lived in Budapest. I was born in Budapest. And uh, my mother, we lived in, the big, in a big house, and my mother was a, a piano teacher, a very successful professor of music. And her brother, my uncle, who lived in the same house, was a philosopher. And uh, he wrote books, and, and he, so in the mornings, I, as, as a child, I used to practice with my mother. In the afternoon, my uncle would take me for walks and after school, and we would talk about things that interested him. And then when I was 15, I left Hungary, after, it was after the war, the Second World War, and there was the communist regime came in. So we left to, to Switzerland and to, to France, then to the U.S., uh, and uh, my interests in philosophy were kind of submerged and, and I was concerned to, be, to make a career as a concert pianist, you see. But then when I got, got married when I was 25, I had a son a couple of years later, and then I started thinking about those issues that I used to discuss with my uncle, and I found that they're exciting, interesting. What am I doing really as a musician? What service do I do to, to, to humanity or, or to society? 
what is the purpose of my life and uh, what is the purpose of life altogether. So these are typically philosophical questions. And so I got in intrigued with them and I started reading and attending courses. And then uh, I happened to get a book published and I caught the attention of the, of the chairman of the philosophy department at Yale University and that got me into the academic world. So mm. there were a lot of steps, a lot of steps, but I was uh, sort of a, a very heavily charged childhood, as it were, both music and philosophy that I built into the house. Mm -hmm. And uh, honestly, I feel the same way when it comes to philosophy. From a young age, I had this deep inherent interest in those philosophical questions which you just mentioned. Do you feel that that's something that is inherent or naturally of every young child and then at some point it, it kind of from them and then it's almost like they have to reclaim this this interest in these deeper meanings but behind you know those those questions because i find like sometimes these visceral things distract us so much in society we we kind of just think that that's all there is those those external things we rely so much on the senses and we don't go so deep and, and have those those deep questions so I, I suppose my question to you is just that do you feel that it's something that dissipates and is, is, is external influence that it dissipates or how do you feel that unfolds? Well, it's, it's joined. It's, you cannot make it purely external or internal. Obviously, there is something that it's response in us. Uh, but because I had a very unusual childhood, you see, being a child prodigy, I attended very little school, actually, to, to, until the time that I got actually my PhD at the, at the highest level at the Sorbonne. Uh, I practically never attended university. I just got invited to give talks and, and publish books, and then I was invited to present a, a thesis at the Sorbonne in Paris. So, uh, but I had no formal training, no formal background, schooling background, which in retrospect seems to be a good, have been a good thing because I was not brainwashed into anything. I was left to pose my questions and I was given the opportunity because playing concerts and traveling around, there was a lot of free time. One practiced two, three hours a day, a lot of traveling involved. Then the rest of the time I was, could, could do what I wanted. And so I had plenty of time to ask questions. Then I started, took a very sort of uh, uh, self-confident way, almost overconfident way, thought I could maybe answer or, or, or tackle some of the questions that philosophers have tried to tackle. So I started taking notes, making notes for myself. And that uh, is, you know, that kind of a challenge of seeing what can I find out myself. You know, that led me to publish my first book, which was in 1963, which was kind of metaphysics and on a society in a metaphysical framework called the Essential Society. It was published by a big publisher in Holland. And so that's, I got, just got involved, more and more involved, until I got to the point where I had to choose whether I want to do, continue these interests and read and write and devote myself to study, perhaps join university courses, or whether I continue as a concert pianist. There came a point where I couldn't do both. I had to choose, and it so happened that when I had to choose uh, there was an invitation from Yale, Yale, Yale University to go come for a semester. <clears throat> I decided to accept that. And then that was the end of my professional career in music. 
Mm -hmm. This was my hobby as music, of course, was more enjoyable than ever before, but I was not uh, living on uh, as, a, as a musician. Yeah, which I, I imagine uh, is challenging for, for many, you know, although if you're, if you have offers, I suppose, to be a concert pianist somewhere, then it's probably much, uh, much less challenging. Um, I suppose, do you find that philosophy and, and music are, are intertwined in a way? Do you see any relation between the two? I mean, having a background in both. It struck me, what struck me, that in music was the perfection of a great work of art. The one, the, the sense that you can't change anything. It's not, I, I was never doing improvising or just sort of climpering around. I was trying to interpret great pieces of music, you see. And I always felt that, that they are, they are so, so great, so perfect, you can't change anything. So every note belongs to the whole thing. And that kind of perfection is what I thought. Maybe it's there also in nature. Maybe it's there in the, in the world somehow. And so I was seeking to understand how things hang together. What is the unifying principle? Why is a living system a whole? Why could society be a whole? Why it isn't actually? What's wrong with many things? Why a nature operates as an integral, uh, perfected system if you, if you leave it alone, if you let it flourish. So I think this search for what I would now say in terms of using the term that you get from science and philosophy, the term being coherence, looking for coherence. By coherence, I mean the way a system, whether it's a living being, whether it's a society, whether it's a galaxy, or whether it's just a, a molecule, but it's put together in such a way that each part is connected with the other parts, and that together they create an entity, a oneness. And I was seeking this kind of perfection, this coherence, which later on they discovered is a very deep uh, root in the Eastern tradition where people, philosophers, the sages have been seeking coherence for thousands of years. And how it's coming up in the new sciences as well, understanding that the key element in nature is not mindless and violent competition, but collaboration, cooperation, and the seeking of creating something bigger than each of the parts alone could be. It's creating something bigger. And that was is something is underlying spirituality or religion, obviously. And that's something that has always motivated me. So the link for my, to my mind has been the sense of wholeness, the sense of perfection in music, and then the, the search for that in the world of reality, which I was hoping to, to approach through the findings of the sciences. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned that the music is sort of perfect as it is, and it, can't, it's, it remains unchanged, and you're basically reproducing that perfection, that level of perfection in, in the art form that is, you know, performance music. Do you find that that, I know you have some, you've uh, written some on, on the Akashic records, do you find that information sort of flows through the individual, and that, they, uh, and there's, speaking philosophically, they're in a way guided by the muses, and it comes to them and that 
piece, whether it be, you know, Mozart or Beethoven, whatever that piece of perfection is, that it comes to them in such a way and they have to remain open and receptive to it? Or do you, would you where do you feel this artistic uh, creation comes from in terms of, uh, in terms of music? Well, very, very deep questions, obviously not easy mm -hmm. to answer. But the source of inspiration, I think, is in us, because I have now come to believe, after many years of, of, of searching, that the universe cannot be conceived as an impersonal, um, semi-random, uh, a chance-ridden uh, world. It is highly oriented, and it's coherent and oneness-oriented. And so that there is something in us, which we can call it uh, the, the divine spark or, or, or the, 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 the idea of, of a deeper spirituality idea, the keys, wisdom, whatever we call it, that there is something in us which is when we really get to it and con contemplate it, allow it to come forth, it's that something which enables us to join things together, to feel ourselves being part of other things and feel the perfection as it unfolds. A work of art is not something dead. I mean, it's, I was an interpreter and, and, and when I was philosophy and, 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 and science, I was an original writer, you know, I was doing comic forms with my ideas. But in music, I was an interpreter, you see. I, I, I'm not changing what the score was given. But at the same time, living oneself into that score is an experience. It's a very personal experience. So it's not something mechanical. I was always refusing to analyze a piece of music in the sense of what did the composer really want to say here? You know, or, or what, did he want an accent here or, or, or a pause over there or whatever you see? And what does that mean? I tried to think if it makes sense to me, then I'll play it and then I can communicate that sense. It's not the understanding, the intellectual understanding one communicates in art, I think it's the experience, the aesthetic experience. If I have it, I can infect, so to speak, others with it. The communication is basically becoming the experience that we want others to have. So it's always new, it's always, it's always a seeking and then, in the best case, finding some element of that wholeness and the perfection, which is there in the great works, whether it's music or literature or poetry or sculpture or painting or whatever. Okay. And do you find that people now, in the time that we're in, are a little bit disconnected from this level of creativity and, and, and having this flow through them in such a way? To create great music or whatever it may be, great art. Do you find that there's some hindrance right now? And, and if so, what, what would that be in, in our current society? Well, every period has its own art, its own way of expressing it. We have been misled, I'm just giving my conclusions in a way, uh, misled into the past 50, 60, maybe 100 years into believing that technology is the answer and that we can dictate how the world should run. And therefore we are so taken up with our everyday challenges and everyday commands that we want to give. What do we want to have? And that is deflecting us from this search 
which was there in the deep metaphysical traditions and the East has always been there, but also in the West of, of trying to understand what there is and becoming one with it, with, with what there is. So I think it's a difficult time today because now more and more one is obliged to struggle to survive. And you don't have that depth, that freedom that in the best cases, in the great monasteries in the East and in the West as well, had where we could devote one's time to reflections. So we have to search for that sense of fulfillment which comes from finding the wholeness, the coherence and things it in, our, in our own time, finding the time and the energy for it, becoming increasingly difficult. At the same time, the call for it, the necessity for it is becoming ever more insistent. Because we cannot get out of this chaos, out of these crises, this purely uh, trial, uh, trying various things, trial and error, chance kind of uh, procedures. We need to exercise our intuition, our sense, our deeper sense, our spiritual experience, which I was talking about in my latest book, which is there in everybody. And, and on our, some moment in our life, we have experiences that are truly grasping, seizing us, taking hold of our attention, and is changing our life. And it's uniting us to each other and to the world. And that's the deepest experience which young people and spiritual people today express as unconditional love. It's something which you feel toward others, not because you want to get something out of it, but because it's, it's the most marvelous feeling, most uplifting, most feeling of fullness, completeness, of perfection. That's what I found in music. That's what I'm seeking ever since. And I'm trying to communicate it by showing that there is a support for that in the new paradigm in the sciences, where, it's, where not the fittest survives, but the most cooperative survives and thrives. And the world itself does not run by brute force, mechanical force, but runs on this, what I call an attractor, a holotropic attractor, a, holos or, a wholeness-oriented attractor, which is there in the, in the nucleus of the atom. Max Planck said that. And it's there, in, in, as Einstein noticed that, in, in every atom, in every, uh, in every law of nature, there is a divine or higher, at least, whatever you might call it, a higher intelligence somehow manifesting itself, which tells us that we are not alone, we are not a chance-based entities, we are part of a, of a larger whole which evolves, and we can evolve with that whole together. That is then the sense that we can get out of our existence. Mm -hmm. and, and this energy or this force, whatever it may be, divine force, whatever you want to call it, it, it is it seemingly has this interwoven underlying fabric of unconditional love that perpetuates through all things. And, and I've experienced it myself, and I find that the situation we're in now, be it a, considered a crisis or whatever it may be, I find it's pushing people to the break of this, what you call spontaneous enlightenment, where just even brief glimpses or flashes of this, this uh, I don't even know how you would, you would call it, but it's an, it's an experience to be had. And, and they can undertake this experience, and even if it's just brief, I find that it, it calls to them, and it gives them that sense of seeking, 
and, and wanting to understand and go deeper. So I find that even though we're in this time, it's, it's like an accelerated, um, accelerated time we're in in terms of putting people to that break. But uh, I actually am uh, optimistic overall about people's uh, sort of opening up this and, and getting a better understanding and a better grasp of it. And uh, it, is, it is funny you mentioned over the past 50 or even 100 years of this has been it's seemingly manipulated in, in our culture, um, and I'm not—I'm I, not entirely sure why, to what end, or, or, or for what reason. Um, and I don't even really care to inquire much. But I feel like there's been many people in 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 this time that we're in, such as yourself, to help bring people in into that unconditional love and help them understand it better. Um, I find that these conversations are, are a great use of technology. So it's like we're the younger generation now is using these devices to kind of like ride that wave of technology, but do so in such a way that we can communicate these messages to to a younger audience. So I'm I'm really thankful that you you speak of what what you do because it uh, it resonates with me, and I'm sure it will with a lot of other people. Uh, so so my question for you now is: Do you have any any particular uh, routine meditation or be it go for a walk or anything that that helps bring you back into that? resonance into that understanding that knowing there are many ways obviously i don't know if there will be any privilege way. the experience of nature is wonderful if you can have it i live here in tuscany on a hilltop and close to the sea today i've spent most of my day actually by the seaside and a brilliant day but also very windy so the, the waves were whipping up and it's a great feeling to be next to it. And in the afternoon, I'm up here on a, on a hill, having a beautiful view, and I can see the clouds and, and, and see the green greenness coming. It's a beautiful feeling because last week, we had a big shower. And all night, it was raining quite heavily. And then miraculously, you know, the grass starts growing and everything that was dried up over the past two, three months, there was no rain everything dried up and it's now coming back to life. It's a wonderful feeling also, being part of a rejuvenation. So all, whatever you have around you, you know, whatever you can find, uh, obviously works of art, uh, great literature, music, but simply contemplation, being mindful, mindful, or can actively enter into meditation if we can, or prayer, whatever is our predisposition. But let, let the deeper sense that we have in us come to, the fore, come to the front, come to surface, and not suppress it as pure superstition. And this interesting experience, I'm writing this book on reconnecting to the, to the, uh, to the source, I didn't actually think of writing it. I, it was not a plan, a project of mine. But I got aware that some people were talking to me about deep experiences, life-changing experiences. And I thought, let me ask some people what, if they had such experiences and what it, it meant to them. And it so happens that the people that I asked, they came up with and said, yes, we did have, I did, obviously in the first person, had such an experience and it changed my life. It made me what I am today. And since these are people, deeply spiritual people, but not only people who are, who are only spiritual, they're also scientists and artists and, and some of them are business people, but having a deeper sense of spirituality. 
and uh, I asked them to describe their experiences and they were kind enough to do that, to share it. They ordinarily don't do it because people look askance, as it were, on, on people who have come up with these experiences. How come I thought you were a serious person? How come you have the experiences? How come that made you change your life? But actually people, when they allow themselves or ask them to introspect a little bit, go back to themselves, they find that they had these experiences. I call them spiritual experiences. And that these experiences, no matter what form they take, they always reinforce a sense that there is nothing by chance. Everything is there for a purpose. Everything is coherent. We are part of that coherence. And then we feel this unrequited, un un unconditional love to other things around us, people and nature, and maybe just the, 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 the earth as a whole. You know, when we feel that, it's not uh, something that's superficial or, or artificial or just imaginative, imagination, fantasy. It is imaginative, but it has a deeper root. The root because nature actually is not a mechanical chance phenomenon. We have been misled for the past 300 years or so by the followers of Newton. Newton himself was a deeply spiritual person, but his followers picked up his mechanistic ideas of the laws of nature and the success that it had in, in engineering fields and simply said that is the nature of the world, which Newton never would have said because he was a spiritual person himself. He, he has writings that were never published, which are still maintained in the, kept in the British Museum. But uh, the followers are dangerous people, you know. Darwin's followers also disregarded his sense that there is a deeper attraction and love among the species and among members of a species and only concentrated on the idea of fitness, which, uh, which of, of the survival of the fitness, which was not a main, main idea of Darwin. That's not what he wanted to come forth. So you see, we have been misled by believing that science only tells us to be selfish, to promote yourself, never mind the rest, and just be very practical. So that's fine on some level, but on the whole, it takes apart the coherence of the world that creates these unbalances, creates crisis. We don't know whether even this, this virus crisis has been provoked or not, we don't know, by some artificial, non-natural behavior or, or, or development that we have had, whether it's in the everyday field or whether it's in chemistry or, or physics. We don't know, but we certainly have not been living in a natural way for a long time. We are eating artificial food to a large extent. We are living in artificial surroundings. We are surrounded by radiations and, and, and toxic elements. So we are increasingly detached from the world around us. And perhaps we're beginning to feel that we need to reconnect. And reconnecting to the source means to reconnect to that deeper oneness, that deeper attraction which is there in the world and which would be there in us and which we need to, need to come to surface again. We need to express if we want to be healthy and well. And I, and I feel, just as I was saying, with, with it being an accelerated time, I think even though it may have been hundreds of years, and I almost feel like it's been strategically structured in a way to, to be this way, from the food to the environment to... To the, to the media and, and technology, the integration of that with the media. Um, I, I feel that because of this acceleration that we're in, that though it could take hundreds of years to 
get us to this point. It's going, it all comes crumbling down so fast that it could take a mere 10 to 20 years for all that to revert right back to bringing us into our natural harmonious state of being one with nature, one with, and having that sense of, of connectivity with all things. So that's, that's the challenge. That's, that's the big task of, a, of, of this time, you know. Mm-hmm. I'll devoting my full time to trying to spell that out. You know. mm-hmm. I'm writing a book now called Global Crisis, Colon, The Opportunity. And I say it's a subtitle, now we can build a better world. It's a chance we have. So look at the crisis not only as danger, but look at it as opportunity because we don't really have major change fast enough to cope with these problems that are accumulating the unsustainabilities around us. And the potential crisis and, and, and breakdowns, we don't have the time if, unless, unless there is something pushing us to change and opening us, waking us up. And that's happening. It's happening in the nick of time. And I think, despite of the human sacrifice that is uh, that is required in this this time of health crisis, despite of that, there is a fact, a sense that this came in the nick of time that this had to come. Could have come in a way that it doesn't kill people. It came in a way in which it's it's a shock. It's a shock wave, and we needed a shock wave to wake up and move out of the routines that have been embedded on the past and which led to more and more uh, frequent crises and unsustainabilities and injustices, revolts. The world is in full revolt everywhere today. And that is a sign of the times, not to despair and fear, but to try to steer it into a positive way. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting how quick humans are willing to adapt to habitual patterns and day-to-day patterns. And, and I have two dogs. I, I perform little experiments. It's almost like Pavlov's tests with these dogs. And I think the human brain, the human mind, the way it works, it's like it, get pro, it gets programmed. And it can, take, it can happen in one lifetime, one generation, but it can happen over a series of multiple generations. And then we have this, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Rupert, Rupert Sheldrake. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so I mean, he, he goes deep into in some, some of these studies on uh, morphic resonance. And I find that yeah. these, these are generational. They, they carry these inherent traits, that, these learned traits and, and these, these patterns of behavior. So it, just as you say, the, this is a time that we just get completely shaken as a society. And then all of a sudden we have an opportunity to abandon those old ways of being fast and then start to adopt these, these, new, uh, these new understandings. So... Um, when do you estimate your new book will be will be published? Before the end of the year. Okay. And do you do the audiobook versions as well, or is it just the... Yes, the yeah, well, there will be audiobooks as well. Yeah. Okay, okay, great. Because I know the one I have here, uh, Reconnecting to Source, you, you mentioned it um, earlier in our discussion. Uh, is there an audiobook version to this there one is, as well? There is. There okay. is a Perfect. Yes. It's on yeah. the yeah, I really, I really love the, uh, the audiobook narration. Do you narrate it, or is there a narrator? No, they, they do. They get actors. Oh, okay, perfect. In this case, because I have this, what I call the bouquet of, of spiritual experiences in the first person. It's nice to have each experience narrated by somebody, even though I, it can't be asked, you couldn't just impose on the people who gave these very personal experiences. But they're a good 
actors, people who can who can narrate these things and bring it to bring it to light. What happens on these experiences, and they're, they're, they're very instructive, enlightening, I should say. You know what people undergo, and then of course in two thirds of the book I try to find an, an explanation, an understanding of it, in terms of what we know about evolution, about direction of things are working, and about cooperation in the world, and so it's not uh, basically it's it's. It's astonishing, but not surprising. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and now, if you if you could just leave someone with one piece of advice that's listening to this right now, in terms of, of some actionable steps they could take going forward in their day to day life to start to move more into that that sort of loving awareness, let's call it. Um, uh, a spiritual mentor of mine, uh, Ram Dass, uh, Richard Alpert, he he has this term, loving awareness, and it, it really does describe this this sense of of being that you can get into, where you have this this love and awareness of of all these things around you, and and you feel that you're one with it. So, um, what what would be some actionable advice you could give someone that is sort of perhaps even feeling not so connected going forward? I would say the good old Star Wars phase phrase: "Go with the force. The force is in you. The force is now cropping up all over. The force is this." is whatever keep the protons and the neutrons together to form an atom, atomic nucleus, you know. And what that associates, one electron becomes a hydrogen atom, and two electrons and deuterium, etc. It's an amazing thing what happens in nature. Since the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago, things have been building in this universe, building up from an initial chaos, becoming more and more coherent. So okay, that's, is that very abstract? I try to think of it. We are part of it. We are built of quanta and atoms and molecules and cells. And all of these are working coherently. Only we are destroying the coherence where we eat badly, where we live artificially, where we disregard our connections to other people and to nature. We are the one who's destroying the coherence. But coherence is built into the world. It, this is a coherence-seeking, a wholeness-seeking universe. That's a fantastic recognition. You can ascribe it to a, to a higher intelligence. You can personify it, called the God or a Buddha or, or the Tao or whatever. But it's there in nature. It's there in nature. And you don't have to be just a purely a religious fanatic to affirm that. Uh, it's enough to recognize what the new sciences, but the new paradigm in the sciences is telling you about how the world actually is built on the creating on the creation of integral interconnected systems, building to a higher level of complexity and oneness. That is the real world, and it used to be metaphysics. Today, it's also physics. That's beautiful. Yeah, I love that. Anyone has any questions and wants to reach out to you? Um, what's the best way to do so? Is it with email or uh, your website, or, or what's the best way they can they can reach out? Well, I have a research institute, and we are trying to pick up these questions and trying uh, to do research on them. What we call the new paradigm. So look up the Laszlo Institute, Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research, where it comes from. Out of it is Laszlo Institute. And of course, if uh, through my publishers, I get I get mail as well. 
And I try to be, be available and open to people like yourself, who themselves are seriously involved in this, not just as a publicity stunt, but as something that they really feel. And so I'm always open to dialogue. That's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It is for me. It's interesting you say that because I I feel compelled to do these interviews by a reason that I don't know. It's, it's not part of my profession in any way. It, it doesn't really affect my profession in any way, but I feel compelled to do these, um, have these discussions and respond to people's questions and create content around this type of stuff. So I'm not entirely sure why, but one day I'll figure it out. Mm. Thank, you, thank you for taking the time to have this chat today. I, I'll, I will put all the links um, to your, your institute and also to Reconnecting to Source and uh, yes. other work. Uh, also, when you publish when you publish your new book, I'll put that in there as well. I'll put that in the episode note. Um, so thank you for taking this time. I, I really do appreciate it. And, and perhaps we can have another discussion when your new book comes out. I would really look forward to that. Well, very happy to. I'm, I like to, normally I say 10, 15 minutes, but you see now I've been talking 40 minutes and I enjoyed it and it, it's fine because it's sincere and it's genuine. It's the best type of conversation to have. <laughs> Thanks for the dialogue. All right, thank you.